Right. Well, please open with me in God's Word to Revelation chapter 6. And again, if you have your Revelation notebook with you, Revelation 6 is found there beginning on page 22. Uh, but Revelation chapter 6. And uh, this morning, brothers and sisters, we come to what are generally known as the four horses of the apocalypse. Uh, what, what comes to your mind when you hear of the four horses of the apocalypse? You know, they, they have captured the imagination over the centuries of artists, of storytellers, of uh, film writers, of musicians. And for those of you who are fans of Weird Al Yankovic like me, you know that about 10 years ago he released an album called Alpocalypse, where Weird Al was actually riding on one of the four horses. Yet, as we consider these four horsemen, there's really nothing funny about them. Because in this God-given vision, we wrestle over the suffering that these four horsemen bring into the world. And so let us then read together here in Revelation chapter 6, where John writes, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. When I opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. 
Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Brothers and sisters, let us again draw close to the throne of God as his people in prayer. Let us pray. Father, these indeed may be hard words for us to hear. Yet may we see in them and through them Christ in all of his glory. And may our hope be found even in the midst of these truths. Because of Christ. Because of all that He is doing here in this world. As is revealed to us until He returns. So we pray that, Father, we will hear this message this morning with humble hearts that will hear them with open minds so that we will find our confidence and comfort in hope as we continue living under your reign in this world. So Father, please may your spirit be at work among us to empower us to hear these words from your own mouth as your words are preached. And we ask these things then in the name of our great and glorious King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, what does this chapter from Revelation show us? That Christ is sovereign over our suffering. Christ is sovereign over our suffering. And so under his sovereignty, we as his people are those who wait for his kingdom to come when his justice will finally vindicate us. And we see this first in this chapter as the, first as the four horsemen are released in verses 1 to 8. Then we go on to see the faithful martyrs reassured in verses 9 to 11. And finally, the fearful wicked repaid in verses 12 to 17. So the four horsemen released, the faithful martyrs reassured, and the fearful wicked repaid. Let's begin then by considering the first horseman released here as these four seals are opened. And, in, in, and as this chapter continues, of course, here the book of Revelation is written to Christians who are struggling with various temptations and trials and tribulation, which is why God is here revealing Christ in his heavenly reign to these churches through symbolic visions that are recorded by the Apostle John. 
So after Christ addresses these seven churches with seven letters, which then represent all of Christ's churches through this age, God then calls John up to heaven in a vision to see his throne room together with the heavenly hosts. And sitting on the throne, God the Father is seen holding a scroll which is written on both sides, this plan of redemption which includes both God's plan of God's salvation of his people and his plan of judgment against the wicked. But this scroll and what is written on it has been sealed only allowing for someone who is authorized to break these seals when the time comes and carry out God's purposes through human history. He is the one who is worthy that God calls upon then to carry out these events that are recorded for human history, which is why then we see Christ who is standing before God's throne as the lion and the lamb who is slain to redeem a sinful people to God by his blood so that we are freed from our slavery to sin as Christ triumphs over Satan and all the evil powers on the cross. So we see then through Christ's death that he alone is worthy to open the scroll and to loosen its seals to then carry out God's redemptive plan in history. So he is the one that then takes this scroll from God the Father where the, and the heavenly host breaks out in worship and all of creation joins in the one who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Which then brings us to this chapter, where John continues recording this vision of Christ as Christ then opens these six seals to execute the events that are recorded on the scroll. And each time a seal is opened, they follow a pattern. The first four seals, we see then that one of the four angelic living creatures that are there in heaven together symbolizing God's creation, announces, come, come and see. To which John then looks and sees a colored horse with a horseman who's riding it as they carry out various judgments in this world. But what do these colored horses mean? Well, here we must again return to the Old Testament. And frankly, there's so much Old Testament uh, allusions and um, truths that are that are brought out in this chapter. I can't even hope to begin to address all of them, but most directly we can look at Zechariah, for example, the prophet Zechariah, who in chapter one of Zechariah two receives a vision where he sees four horsemen riding on colored horses, which the Lord then sends to walk to and fro throughout the earth. And then in Zechariah chapter six, he receives another vision of four chariots, with the first chariot having red horses, the second chariot having black horses, the third chariot with white horses, and the fourth chariot with dappled horses. And you start to hear familiar themes, don't you? But there in Zechariah, these are described as the four spirits of heaven who then go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. And the Lord sends out these horsemen as instruments of his judgment as they bring God's wrath upon the earth. 
So in this vision here in Revelation, each time Christ opens a seal, John sees one of these four horsemen that are released onto the earth as they bring increasingly destructive consequences of mankind's sin into the world. So we see how saturated then this chapter as these seals are opened are of Old Testament imagery and allusions. Not only here from Zechariah, but you could also look to Ezekiel 14, for example, which parallel these four horsemen that Christ sends to all the earth with the severe judgments that God warns and sends to his unfaithful people in Israel. But let's consider then these four horsemen a little more closely. Who is the first horseman? We see here that he is riding on a white horse, described with a bow in his hand and a crown on his head, and he's going out conquering and to conquer. Well, there is some question over who this first horseman is, some believing he is Christ. You know, Christ later in Revelation chapter 19 is described as riding a white horse with many crowns who in righteousness judges and makes war. So there are those who see this first horseman as Christ himself, but I don't see this as correct. Chapter 19 reveals Christ's glorious return, where here in chapter 6, Christ is opening the seals of judgment upon the world. Because these horsemen are here working together to release devastation in this world. And the first one here is pictured as royalty then, which is symbolized through his riding a white horse while carrying a weapon of war in a bow, desiring to conquer nations and kingdoms. So John here sees through this horseman humanity's thirst for power as the first seal is opened. But I think it's also possible to see this first horseman pictured like Christ because he, isn't, he is pretending to be Christ. Where he claims to deliver through his power what only Christ provides in this world. It's why that we in this age should expect false Christs to arise. And so remember here that these churches who are receiving this revelation from John's hand are living in the midst of a Roman Empire with a Roman Emperor who often was worshipped as a god. And where the Roman Empire was uh, a place that promised peace and prosperity. But what does what do they learn here from this first horseman? That the leaders of this world are those who abuse their power in selfish conquest so that sinful human hearts lust after more power in conquering others. And whatever hope they may have had in the emperor, whatever peace they may have had in the empire was limited and temporary. But then Christ comes and we see him opening the second seal. And what horseman does John see? But a fiery red horse that is being ridden. And this horseman is granted then to take peace from the earth in war, leading to the slaughter of many through a great sword that he has given. 
do you see how then we move first when the first seal's opened from this desire to conquer to the second seal that is open to wartime conflict? There's a progression that is now taking place in these four horsemen. Because the sword is now being used. But in scripture, this sword represents the government's God-given power for the punishment of evildoers. Yet how is it is used here? It's used in military warfare, which brings much death. Then we see the third seal opened, where John looks and sees a horseman now on a black horse. And he is one that's holding a pair of scales or a balance in his hand, which was then used to measure coins or metal, precious metal in exchange for goods. And then a voice comes to announce how expensive the basic grains of the day would be to buy. That one quart of wheat, which would have been the finer grain, or three quarts of barley, which would have been the grain for poorer people, would cost a denarius, which was an entire day's wage. This would have been then 10 to 12 times the usual, grain, the usual cost of these grains in the Roman world, which would show then how difficult life can become when you don't have enough money to provide for yourself or your family. Why then is there this famine, this poorness? Well, it's often the result of war. What happens in the midst of war? Struggles for food, rationing supplies, or even the basic necessities of life are hard to come by. And yet even here, there's, there are limits. Because oil and wine will remain. Do you see then again the progress? These horsemen begin with a desire to conquer which then leads to war, which then brings in its wake famine and poverty and hunger. This, this then brings us to the fourth seal and Christ opening the fourth seal, where John sees a horseman on a pale horse, which is a yellowish green color symbolizing disease and death. I mean, after all, this is the horseman's very name here, right? His name is Death. And Hades, which includes both the grave and the afterlife, is here graphically seen as following the horsemen of death to collect the corpses that death leaves behind. And how much does this pestilence and plague that leads to death and the grave ravage in the world, according to this seal? Revelation records one-fourth of the earth. Because you're killed. Now I know, for those of you who are Marvel fans, in the Avengers, of Thanos, which by the way is the Greek word for death, but Thanos snaps his fingers and immediately exterminates half of the world. But listen, opening this seal is no fictional story. So much of the world coming under the devastation of death. Today, a fourth of the earth 
would be almost 2 billion people, which would be six times our entire nation's population that is here pictured under the ravages of death. So we come to see how devastating sin is in this world. We began with the first horseman in a desire to conquer and then come to the second horseman to see the tragedy of war. And then with the third horseman, the struggles of famine and pestilence finally now leading to the fourth horseman in the ravages of death. What a painfully accurate picture of this world that we live in. And if you pay attention to the news today, we often hear these stories. China is seeking to conquer Hong Kong while protesters are out singing Christian hymns. Russia is invading Ukraine while opposing all non-Orthodox churches. Christian refugees are forced out of war-torn lands, poor and starving. Muslim leaders are seeking to convert or exterminate Christians. And frankly, our nation's peace and prosperity is the exception, not the rule. And who knows how long our own peace and prosperity will last. This is describing the world we live in. You see, we should not simply see these four horsemen as future judgments to come. But Revelation 6 reveals through this symbolic vision what life is like in this age. And here it actually seeks to visually reveal what Jesus himself taught. You know, there, there are parallels here that you cannot miss when you compare Revelation 6 with what Jesus taught his disciples on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21, where Jesus shows his churches what life will be like in this world. So listen as I read Christ's words here from Matthew 24. And as I read Matthew 24, verses 1 to 14, compare what Jesus says to what John records about these four horsemen. Jesus says, beginning in verse 4, And Jesus answered his disciples and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached into all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Did you hear the, first horse, the, the, the four horsemen reflected here through Christ's words, the desire for conquest? The false Christ, 
the wars, the famine and pestilence, the death. Brothers and sisters, this is what we experience as followers of Christ in this world. So what Jesus is opening through these seals in Revelation is what he taught his disciples to expect in this present evil age until he returns. You know, our challenge so often is we, we, we are seeking to understand the symbolism and the details of these four horsemen and these four seals, yet we can miss out at the power in which the, this, this, these visions, this vision and its symbolism is meant to lead us to to have in our very emotions, in our very heart. I, I appreciate how uh, Robert Mounts summarizes this when he says, reviewing the various interpretations assigned to the four horsemen tends to rob the contemporary reader of the dramatic nature of the vision itself. It is good to place oneself back in one of the seven churches and listen to the visions as they are being read. Instead of discussing the probable significance of each of the four colored horses, those first listeners would have recoiled in terror as war, bloodshed, famine, and death galloped furiously across the stage of their imagination. See, Revelation gives these visions for us to become emotionally invested in what is seen being carried out from heaven on the earth. Which is why these four horsemen are allowed to cause much suffering in this world during this age. But they're not signs that the end has come. They are preparatory signs that the end is coming. Yet, brothers and sisters, let us not miss Christ's sovereignty over the four horsemen. Who is the one who opens the seals to release them? Christ. And three times we read that these horsemen are given a crown, a sword, and power. Who gives them these things? Christ. What they are able to do is determined by Christ. We also read of limitations that are placed on these horsemen. After all, the famine was not absolute, but oil and wine would remain. And the power that was given to death in Hades was limited to one quarter of the earth. Do you see then how humanity's suffering during this age is under Christ's sovereign control? And in doing so, he is carrying out both God's redemptive and his judicial purposes. Because the trials and the troubles of this world will either bring the purification of Christ's church or will bring the punishment of those who continue to dwell on the earth in rebellion against God and sin. There is a dual purpose that is being carried out through these judgments. In the purification of God's people and in the punishment of God's enemies. You know, the truth is, 
when we hear that Christ is in control of such suffering, it can make us very uncomfortable. Why does he allow such suffering in this world? Why would he release such destruction and death among his people? Of course, this brings us back to the commonly asked problem of evil. Why does God allow such evil in this world? And there are many good and helpful explanations out there. But ultimately, there's much mystery that we simply cannot and do not know. What John reveals to us, though, is in the midst of such suffering, that Christ is sovereign. That He is sovereign over this suffering so that we are reminded that He is in control of all that happens and that He permits what happens to serve a greater purpose in God's redemptive plan for this age. This then provides us with comfort to know that all that happens in this world is under the sovereign control of God and is seeking to carry out His purposes of redemption in this world. Do you see then how through this heavenly vision, God is preparing us to trust in Him while we suffer through persecution in worldly deception and conquest, in war and bloodshed, in famine and poverty, and in disease and death. What encouragement these Christians would receive in Revelation in the midst of their suffering. And in the midst of our suffering, brothers and sisters, we should confess like our patriarch Joseph, and what he said to his brothers after all of his suffering in Genesis 50:20, "But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive." And we find then in Christ releasing these four horsemen, that he too means it for good, so that he will bring about the salvation and redemption of a multitude for whom He is the Lion and the Lamb slain by His blood. So the four horsemen are released. This brings us then to verses 9-11 where we see the faithful martyrs reassured. This is seen as the fifth seal is opened, which is different from the previous four. Because instead of John seeing what will take place on the earth, he looks back to heaven and to the altar of God's heavenly temple. And what does he see under the altar? But the souls of those who are slain for the faith. You see, they do not escape the earthly effects of these four horsemen, do they? So the hope of Revelation is not found in escaping this time of tribulation, as some believe and teach. But it's found in persevering through this time of tribulation as we wait for Christ's kingdom to come. So we don't seek for the rapture to bring us out of this. But we trust in the Lord through this as we wait for Christ to return. 
and for His kingdom to fully come. Which is why, as we've seen, in the midst of a world where these horsemen ride, the Christians will be persecuted. And Christians will be killed. They are then these martyrs who have been killed for their faith, who represent then all of those who believe in Christ and follow Him. And we find in this fifth seal, in the opening of this fifth seal, that they are killed for obeying the Word of God and for testifying their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So these Christians, these martyrs, remain faithful in the midst of the temptations and the trials and the tribulation of this world. But how do they respond? How long, O Lord? How long will the Lord allow His people to be slaughtered in this world? How long will this suffering and martyrdom continue? I mean, can you feel the desperation of these martyrs' pleas to God? As they ask this question, this is an imprecatory prayer for vengeance for Christ's church against those who have opposed and oppressed them. They are crying out for justice to come. Which is why Jesus said while he was speaking about prayer in Luke 18, verses 7 and 8, And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? See, God created us to cry out for justice because he is just. And when we look around and see how Christians are mistreated, how Christians are persecuted, how Christians are martyred, we cry out for justice for vengeance that we have entrusted to the Lord to carry out. So these martyrs continue to cry this prayer for vengeance. And look at how he then responds to these prayers. They are each given, each one of them is given a white robe which as we've seen from Christ's letter to the church of Sardis represents Christ's righteousness and his purity. So these Christians are given these white robes to show the purity that they have received in Christ and the glory that they will receive when Christ returns. See, for these martyrs, they may have been persecuted and killed in this world, but their souls remain in heaven and their future in Christ is secure and sure. But the Lord answers them and says that they will need to rest a little while longer. Did you notice how the believer's death is described here? As a time of rest. Because in death, the struggles and suffering that we endure in this world have come to an end. But this rest itself will only be temporary. 
because Christ is returning at the end of this age to begin the age to come when we look forward to receiving resurrection glory to live with him forever. But how long must they wait? How long will this persecution and martyrdom continue? And they're told until the full number of God's chosen people are redeemed by Christ and ready to enter his coming kingdom. And how will this happen? Through their martyrdom. Through their being killed for their faith in Christ. Because this is what we should expect in this age. As Christ has shown us, life comes through death. He was the first fruits, and we are those who follow in his footsteps. Which is why that for so many believers in Christ through history, this has meant martyrdom. So here's what we see through these martyrs. For Christians, the word of God and the testimony that we hold are more important to us than life itself. Because death is not our end, but our souls will rest in, 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 in they'll, they'll rest in heaven until the end of the age when we will be resurrected to live on a new heavens and a new earth. So it's because of the sure and certain hope of what is coming that we remain faithful until death and we prepare for martyrdom in this world, whether we will be killed for our faith or not. But do you know, as I reflect upon this truth, how convicted my soul truly is? Because I am far too comfortable in this world. My heart is far too much at home here. My mind is much too concerned with my life in this world. So I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26. You know what he says to his disciples? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? How my conviction of sin and my love for this world and my cares for my life in this world lead me to repentance. To confess my sin before God as the one who is far too fearful of what's taking place here rather than trusting in all that is taking place here, is preparing me for the glorious future to come. So if you feel anything like me in the midst of these words, repent. Join with me in repentance by turning away from your sins and turning to Christ in whom forgiveness is found through his shed blood for us. 
Because even in martyrdom, Christ promises us white robes of purity and righteousness as we wait for justice to come. So we began with the four horsemen released, and then we continued with the faithful martyrs reassured. But finally, in verses 12 to 17, we come to the fearful wicked repaid. And when Christ opens the sixth seal in these verses, 12 to 17, John then sees that creation itself comes under judgment. There is world-destroying language here that comes through many Old Testament prophets symbolizing God's judgment on the day of the Lord. And so we don't have time to look into this this morning, but if you're taking notes or would like to write down these, uh, at least four of these passages, many passages I uh, could raise, but I'd encourage you to look them up later. You look at Isaiah 13, verses 9 to 16. Isaiah 24, verses 1 to 6. Isaiah 34, verses 1 to 4. All of Joel chapter 2, and I could mention many others. These prophetic days of judgment that we read of in the Old Testament, while they may have fallen upon sinful peoples, they also were those that pointed forward to this final fulfillment of God's wrath that is poured out against sin at the end of this age. And so Jesus himself uses the same day of the Lord language again in his teaching to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. So you can return to Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31, this same language Christ uses. We read there Jesus saying, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Do you see then that when John opens, or when John sees the opening of this sixth seal, he is shown that God's judgment against this world will come. Which means that the prayers of the faithful martyrs will be answered that God will judge and avenge their blood on those who dwell on the earth and who continue to live in rebellion against God and sin. Judgment's coming. God's wrath of God will be poured out. And how do the wicked of the world respond in these verses? by trying to hide. And it doesn't matter what position they hold, right? Whether how, how, how much power they have, how much money they make, how high their social status may be. But we see here that all alike will come under the judgment of God. And their vain hope is to somehow escape God's judgment by going into caves and having rocks cover them. But as we read in Isaiah 2 about the coming day of the Lord, 
Listen to verse 19. He says, They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake the earth mightily. And if that's not enough, if this won't keep them from God's judgment, you know what they would rather do? What they would rather have done to them? To be crushed and buried in an avalanche rather than to stand before God in their sinfulness. Oh, no one. No one wants to face this wrath. Do you see then how justice is coming? How Christ's church will be vindicated in all of the evil and the suffering that we endure in the midst of this sinful world? Both God the Father who sits on the throne and God the Son who is the Lamb that was slain will bring righteousness into this world. Vengeance will come, and we will be vindicated. But don't miss how the Lamb is described here at the end of this chapter. We read of the wrath of the Lamb. And when you think of a Lamb, you tend to think of a gentle creature. And Christ certainly is gentle and lowly. He's also full of wrath. Christ's wrath is what will come forward and against all sin and wickedness when it is poured out on His coming day of judgment where no one will be able to stand. So listen to me. This day of Christ's wrath is coming. Are you ready? Because if Christ is not your Savior, then He will be your judge. And the fullness of His wrath will be poured out against you at the end of this age. You will not escape this great day of wrath. No one here come under this judgment of Christ. Not when in His love He has taken this very wrath upon Himself in the place of sinners. See, there is an escape. But it doesn't come through caves and rocks comes through a cross. Look to Christ and see through His love the Lamb who was slain so that you are redeemed and saved from the wrath to come. May each of you know the love of the Lamb who was slain and not the wrath of the Lamb to come. 
believe on the Lamb who is slain on the cross and be saved. Turn away from your sins in repentance. Turn to Christ and embrace Him in faith. Do not foolishly think you can somehow escape or that this wrath is not coming. Look, this scroll and its seals are already written. This has already been recorded. This future is certain. Are you ready? Brothers and sisters, in the midst of these words of judgment, do you see where our hope is found? It's found in seeing how Christ is sovereign over our suffering. And that our suffering need not be the pouring out of wrath for sin the punishment of God for sin, but that our suffering will be used to purify and to prepare us for an eternity of joy in the presence of Christ. May we then be those who live under His sovereignty waiting for His kingdom to come when His justice will finally vindicate us. Why do we become angry? Why do you get angry? You know, we get angry when we believe there has been an injustice committed against us, right? That's why we get angry. And that's actually a God-given way in which we express the reality of injustice in this world. Now, all too often, our anger is mixed when we confuse injustice with our desires and preferences, which is why we have so much sinful anger. But what we see here is there is this God-given desire for justice And in the midst of the suffering that we experience in this world, may we be those who do not have righteous anger without hope. Because Christ is in control. And He is at work in this age. Yes, even through our suffering and death to purify us and prepare us for eternal life, to live with Him. May we then live with this heavenly hope, even as we persevere through the suffering of this world. And we all know that the suffering is increasing today, don't we? Today, uh, or, or, or two years ago, excuse me, the Pew Research Council released a report on the ways that both government restrictions on religion and social hostilities involving religion have changed. And what did they find? 
to no one's surprise, both government restrictions and social hostilities have increased over the last decade. We don't need these statistics to recognize what Revelation shows us. That the four horsemen of the apocalypse are marching throughout the earth. The question then that we are confronted with this morning is how will we live? Will we trust in Christ's sovereignty over our suffering? As we wait for his kingdom to come and when his justice will finally vindicate us? Or will we compromise our faith? Trying to somehow vainly avoid God's judgment. May we be those who with this vision of Christ live faithfully before him as those who are willing to endure suffering and persecution and even death. Because Christ is far more beautiful to us than life itself. And sisters, this is what it means to follow Christ in a sinful world. May we then be people who are captured with this vision of Christ in all of his sovereignty as we suffer in this world. Let us pray. Father, May these words convict us. But may they also lead us to draw to Christ, whose fountain of forgiveness of sins is forever poured out for us. May we look to Christ as the Lamb who is slain. so that we know we'll not need to fear the Lamb who is full of wrath. And may we live as those who are ready and willing to suffer in this world because there is a greater world to come that we will enjoy for all eternity in Christ. Father, may we be a people who live in repentance of our sin so that when we face persecution and trials and troubles and tribulation in this world, we will see Christ in all of his glory, reassuring us of his grace. So, Father, we pray for all these things that in the name of of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.